here. So one of the, the quickest ways to get a, a read on an intellectual's credibility is to, to what extent do they pretend to know things that they don't? And so I used to live stream with a guy who was regularly opining on books and essays and ideas about which he knew absolutely nothing. And I, I'd point out to him, this is like bad. This is, it's not bad for me. I, I don't really care. It doesn't harm me. I'm not worried about the integrity of the show. You know, I, I'm not worried that you're going to you know, pervert the course of truth, goodness, and justice in the world. All right. I just think it's a really bad indicator about you if you are frequently sounding off on books you've never read and ideas you haven't considered, you know, essays and articles that you haven't, haven't looked at and you're giving all these opinions about things which you know absolutely nothing. So this week I, I stumbled on the work of Daniel Forday and he wrote an essay for The Atlantic, all right, on a public safety measure and his primary criteria for whether or not this public safety measure was a good or bad idea, was how did it make him feel? Now, if I were going to write an essay on a public safety measure, my primary criteria would be, does it do good or does it do more harm than good? Does it make people safer or does it make people less safe? And compared to that criteria, you know, my feelings just don't matter for anything. But this guy's name is Daniel Torde, and I thought it was such a bizarre completely disconnected from reality, uh, you know, so abstracted from reality to, to, be, to be perverse. Uh, surely this guy is a gift who, who keeps on giving. So I put his name into Google. I wanted to see if he'd done any podcasts, and he had done a podcast. So here is the podcast. It's called uh, Manifesto, and it's hosted by Jake Siegel, who writes for Tablet. Welcome. The Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host. Okay, so does he recognize that the vanity here is, you know, coming from, in large part, from the little I heard? It sure sounds like it's coming from the hosts and the guests. But is he pretending that it's really... You know the the truth tellers on this podcast who are going to be critiquing the the vanity of others, or is he acknowledging the vanity of the podcast host? Phil Clyde, author of the National Book Award winning short story collection Redeployment, our crack producers Adam Kamara and Alexandra Lynn of Racket Media, and today's guest Daniel Forde, a novelist, author of The Last Flight of Poxel West, which won the National Jewish Book Award, and most recently. Of Boomer One, published by Picador Press. And me, the slumming angel, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Dan, pleasure to have you here. A real pleasure to be on. What the hell? May you continue to be. I mean, just so incredibly pretentious and pompous. Gentlemen. Can you great. tell us uh, what we will be discussing today? Yes. So our central text for the day is going to be one of my favorite books, The Art of Biblical Narrative by Robert Alter, though we will be straying into uh, also uh, said Robert Alter recently completed the first ever single person translation of the entire Bible. So we will be uh, referencing some of his translations there, including uh, his, his book of Jonah. It's quite an accomplishment, a single person translation of the Bible. And I think it would be not only fair, but basically beyond dispute to say that Alter is the premier uh, biblical translator really of the past at least 50 years, maybe yeah. the past century, um, and that he introduced a new approach to biblical translation that really is um, the theme and the subject of a literary approach to the Bible. Yeah, it's Well, and I will say I uh, – so I sort of joke, not joke, but mostly jokes that uh, – so what's hilarious here is that these guys are talking like they know something. All right. I, I would like to think I put, you know, considerable effort into kind of giving you some sense of, you know, how much I believe I know about a particular topic. So these guys are talking as though they are experts in biblical Hebrew and biblical literature and the art of translation. So they are anointing who is the best Bible translator compared to all other Bible translators. What's hilarious is that I, I've listened to about 20 minutes of this podcast, and it appears 
that the three blokes on this podcast have a level of knowledge of, of biblical Hebrew, you know, below that of your average five-year-old Orthodox child. But they they imagine themselves to have, you know, all sorts of expertise that they clearly don't. And it, it's so hilarious when you hear them trying to pronounce Hebrew that, you know, they obviously don't know anything. Now, I, I know, you know, Bupkis, very, very little Hebrew either. I would like to think that uh, when I opine on uh, the Hebrew Bible, that I do, you know, make make it clear my own low level of expertise. <laughs> Both my first two books won the National Jewish Book Award, and I suddenly realized that I probably. Oh, great! Thanks for letting us know, Daniel Torde. Thank you for letting us know about the awards that you won. I, I mean, friends of mine who gotten into blogging, they they needed to put it in the the like the first sentence of their description was you know the awards that they'd won. Right, awards sometimes correlate with excellence. Uh, frequently, there's no correlation with excellence. Frequently, the correlation's in a negative direction. But, uh, yeah, this just seems to be something off and misplaced about people who the first thing they want you to know is the, the awards that they won. You pretend like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and and uh, I've been working on Humble brag. I won two National Jewish Book Awards, but uh, humble brag. Book, uh, for a couple of years now, that's about a false prophet. And so in going through the various Bibles, I have like a tiny bit of Hebrew, but really need to read them in English and found um, it's actually kind of hard to know which one to read. Okay, so good good for him there. He's recognized, he only knows a tiny little bit of Hebrew, but these guys are letting us know that the number one biblical translator in the world today is Robert Alter. Even though these guys don't know anything, have absolutely no capability of, of judging and pronouncing, like, who's the, the greatest, you know, who's the 15th best uh, biblical translator. It's Even from like an American perspective, probably one needs to read the King James. Um, but, but Alter is like very aware of all the various translations and they inform him. So in a weird way, I mean, I almost think of his new translation as a kind of like palimpsest of the last hundred years of translations. Look, if you don't know the biblical Hebrew, you don't really have any, you don't have any substantial basis for pronouncing on, you know, what's a good translation and who's a good translator. It's It's absurd. And then somebody just making like a series of good decisions about which ones to employ. Yeah, I um, just to give the 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 listeners maybe an, an idea. I thought I would give them his Psalm twenty three because they're probably familiar um, which ones with that employ. psalm. Yeah. Yep. This is what I want for Elliot Blatt. I want some nice bloke to anoint his head, you know, with oil and prepare a table for Elliot in, in the midst of his enemies. And Alter had, had, had written, The unacknowledged heresy underlying most modern English versions of the Bible is the use of translation as a vehicle for explaining the Bible instead of representing it in another language. Okay, so he's going to pronounce here on uh, what's good translation and not. And in the most egregious instances, this amounts to explaining away the Bible. And uh, here's uh, Psalm 23 in Alter's translation. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In grass meadows he makes me lie down, by quiet waters guides me. My life he brings back, he leads me on pathways of justice for his name's sake. Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, it is they that console me. You set out a table before me in the face of my foes. You moisten my head with oil, my cup overflows. Let but goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. Um beautifully read and you know i mean maybe one thing we should just say up front is, is uh, i mean there's this cool thing that, that alter was publishing mm -hmm. publishing these books like as he was translating so it took him 20 years but i think when his psalms came out like that was kind of the moment when, when like the like the lay person started to say like holy shit there's this whole new approach yeah. um to just updating this language and making it feel fresh right yeah and also not um not i mean like christianizing it necessarily right so that translation he's not referring to the soul he's not referring to everlasting life um it's he's trying to understand what the 
authors were doing in a literary sense and, and putting that on the page as much as possible. He also has a wonderful book on the art of translation um, <laughs> where he has many, many snarky things to say about uh, this essay. It's unbelievable. A literary approach to the Bible, despite being uh, about subjects that might not seem to be, um, you know, the most like geared towards sniping attacks on <laughs> academic contemporaries <laughs> has two to three condescending or contemptuous or at the very least like withering disregard for uh, other translators two to three per page it's really oh quite incredible he really even, hates this group called, even, uh, called jps who are, the, who are a bunch of jewish scholars who made the sort of like most most secular version that you right, right. Actually, I mean, a lot of people use it but he man does he not like their personal language even when he's like when somebody's approaching the Bible in a way that he likes. Like he references Edwin Good, who, who talks about irony in the Old Testament. Right, right, right. right? Um, so, you know, here's somebody who is taking a literary approach to the Bible, but uh, uh, after, you know, he, he states um, uh, what Good is trying to do. Uh, one sympathizes with Good's complaints about the general indifference of his colleagues to literary issues and with the reasonableness of his declared intention uh, merely to make a modest start in the right direction. His book, <laughs> his book succeeds in doing that, but no more than that. <laughs> He's basically like the Thomas Carlyle of, uh, of, biblical, of biblical withering. Yeah, that, that's right. He, he certainly is the great man of this. And he, you know. Okay, that is funny. That is pretty good stuff. So these are three literary blokes, so they are on solid ground when they're just talking about literary quality. You earn some right to that title, I suppose, by translating the Bible by yourself. It'll, yeah. it'll go well, a long look, way. I mean, and actually, like, two things I was thinking. No, you, you don't earn anything just by translating a text. It depends on how you're contributing anything, right? The Bible has been translated hundreds of times. You translating it an additional time doesn't in and of itself, you know, bestow any value or greatness, or goodness, or scholarship upon you. Front are, um, I mean, first, like exactly what you just said, Jacob, which is that on some level, I mean, uh, Phil, you really love this this uh, this critic named Amy Hungerford, and she has like a You're great right. chapter one in one of her books where she goes through. I was actually shocked how many people in the mid twentieth century sort of like took a literary approach to the Bible, including like Frank Kermode and and Bloom. And you know, on some level, he does have a little bit of a. I mean, I think the reason why I want to talk about him here is 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 half because he just has a different claim from having looked at the shit so closely for so long, but also. It is a manifesto. Like he is laying down a modern approach to being able to make this accessible to people who don't have Hebrew okay. and also potentially don't give a shit. Right? So what would you say? Yeah, because we really need we, we we really really badly need a a new translation of the Bible. Like where would we be without Robert Alter's translation of the Bible? Like finally at last, you know, two billion moderns finally at last have access to the Bible thanks to Robert Alter's translation. Like who's he kidding? There are hundreds of great translations of the Bible out there. You know, how exactly does the Robert Alter translation of the Bible you know, provide access to this ancient text that all these other great or decent or good or above average translations you know, don't provide? I, I'm waiting to hear how exactly is this uh, translation you know, meeting some kind of need? So the manifesto today is a literary approach to the Bible. It is the first chapter of his book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, which is great. Wow, yeah. I, I guess this is the first time in history anyone's talked about taking a literary approach to the Bible. Now, thank God, what a trailblazing approach. I never heard of anyone taking a literary approach to the Bible before. Wow, this just blows me away. It's like, whoa, I just want to do like a, a Kramer uh, from Seinfeld. And what would you say, Dan, is the primary claim that he is making yeah i mean i think for me the primary claim that he's making is that um there's a way for us to update the way that we talk about the bible um in a way that comports with the way we read i mean he literally in the, in the conclusion of yeah and no one's ever done this before this is all brand new uh, of our biblical narrative says you know you might not say that this is as complicated as reading kafka or reading beckett or reading joyce but at the same time like maybe you could <laughs> i mean i think he wants to say like you do kind of need to read the actual language and you need to read the language translated well and when you do like it's oh you need to read the actual language uh translated well i mean come on there's just no comparison between a translation and the real thing and the 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 quality of the translation right when there are hundreds of translations out there I just don't see how this Robert Alter translation, I'm waiting to hear why, why exactly it's so infinitely superior to the other hundreds of translations. It actually has to be like a spiritual or theological experience. You can read it with a kind of literary mind. 
Great. So we get a secularist, you know, writing a secular translation of the Hebrew Bible, and it's going to open up whole vistas of spiritual and you know, theological sublimity. Can't wait. Um, that, and, and for me, like, and I don't know if he says this overtly, but that like allows kind of accessibility and, and modernity that makes it not seem dogmatic. Oh, wow. We've got an accessible translation of the Bible. Why did anyone ever think of that before? For the first time in human history, we at last have an accessible translation of the Bible. Wow. Thank God. I mean, what will they think of next? Uh, a graphic, you know, a, a comic strip version of the Bible. Maybe someone will do that. I'm sure that's never been done. But the interesting thing is that what Alter is saying is that it's not only that the literary reading of the Bible is necessary to fully appreciate its literary subtleties and its uh, the meanings that only emerge from the prosody. I think what he's also saying is that it's necessary to fully appreciate the religious quality of it. Yes. And that the. Why is that interesting? <laughs> Why is it interesting that Robert Otis says that we need to appreciate the literary and religious quality of the Bible? Whoa! Blow me away. My God, that's such a fascinating insight, Jake Siegel. Who would have thought that. Uh, a professor of Hebrew at the University of California would come out with a book saying that we should appreciate the literary and religious quality of the Bible. What, what a gobsmacking revelation. What an absolutely fascinating thing to say. How interesting. Why exactly is that interesting? This has been said 500 million times before by you know hundreds of other scholars. Excessively um, didactic approach of some religious scholars. Oh, wow. So now we have a non-excessively didactic approach to the Bible. Whoa! That's just never been done before. That is so interesting. Why is that interesting? Right? It's literally been done thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times. Where is the interesting element here, mate? As opposed to the excessively uh, historicizing approach of some modern scholars. That oh, excessively historicizing. So just like moderately historicizing is that problem? Historicizing simply means you need to understand everything in its time and place and in its context, right? That just seems like an adult approach to text, to life, to history, to the present, right? It's just basic. It's just woven into any slightly sophisticated understanding of the present and and its history. But why, why is Jake Siegel and these other folks on this podcast just relaying pablum? This absolute pablum, no value, nothing remotely interesting here in, in anything they have to say, because uh, on this podcast, they pick off all these lofty issues. And from my slight acquaintance with the podcast, it, it sure feels like they have nothing to say. Right, I could come on here and do a podcast about each day about a chapter of War and Peace. But what would be the point of that unless I'm contributing something, adding something to the Know, to the conversation that, that goes on d- down through the ages. These guys are adding nothing. That also misses the quality, the spiritual and, and mysterious quality. And there's a quote, uh, I think, that gets at this, not from the excerpt that we read, but from elsewhere in the book where Alter writes, as one discovers how to adjust the fine focus of those literary binoculars, the biblical tales, forceful enough to begin with, show a surprising subtlety and inventiveness of detail, and in many instances, a beautifully interwoven wholeness. Wow, no one's ever pointed out before that there was subtlety in the Bible. Thank God, what a fascinating insight there by Robert Alter. He points out that there's both subtlety in the Bible and there's also wholeness. I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb here. Did you guys realize that the commentary of Lynn Medley consistently betrays both subtlety and wholeness? Whoa. We've got, we've got subtlety and wholeness just running wild in, in the chat right now. Like, someone should be doing a PhD on all the subtlety and wholeness that is just rocketing paradoxical truth may well be that by learning to enjoy the biblical stories more fully as stories we shall also come to see more clearly what they mean to tell us about god man and the perilously momentous realm of history yeah yeah Mm. he also says Mm. i would prefer which like like fully informs my own and i should maybe at this point say like 
have an Episcopalian wife and I don't frequently attend school, but I also like think about this stuff a lot. So I feel like I have this, like, I really like people who believe things, but I'm never sure what I believe. And there is a way in which, I mean, I think he, he's always contextualizing. Okay. So like all of a sudden in the mid 20th century, we could say like, well, maybe these books weren't all written together. So he's always contextualizing, but without excessive historicizing. Thank God. Thank God for just moderate amounts of contextualizing, moderate but continual. Right? He's always contextualizing, but thank God he does it without excessive historicizing. Baruch Hashem. Maybe we can even like break down the parts where some of these, these characters are composites or aren't historical figures. But I mean, in a way, I think the analogy for him is he's just like, yeah, but if at the moment where you're like, holy shit, like bodies are made of cells, and then you've been like, so they're not bodies. <laughs> like that was not the conclusion that biologists drew at the beginning of the 20th century. Right? Right. Like, the yeah. conclusion was, okay, so now we know them in their parts, yeah. and we can know even more about them. Right. And, and he, he makes this point that, you know, uh, with one of the first things that he looks at in this chapter where – you know, so one of the things that modern biblical criticism has done is seen like, okay, like, you know, if you look at a book of the Bible, it seems like, you know, it, different parts were maybe compiled from different sources that there might be, you know. Whoa, these dudes are just blowing my mind. I had no idea that different parts of the Bible were compiled by different sources. <laughs> who would have thought? Of editors who are interjecting things or pasting things together. And he my God, you're telling me that there are editors who are interjecting things? And pasting things together. Next, you you guys are going to tell me that one plus one equals two. He brings up one of those points where uh, it's in the story of uh, Joseph, right? Yeah. And yeah. there's this uh, narrative that gets inserted, right? That seems like it's kind of drawn from another source or it's a, it's a break in the narrative where, you know, there's kind of like modern biblical criticism that looks at it as this kind of discrete element coming from somewhere else. And what he's saying is... Yeah, because modern biblical criticism, it, it in and of itself, it is unitary, all right? It's just modern biblical criticism, and that's just all it is. It's just one approach. Look, modern biblical criticism contains multitudes, right? It contains hundreds of different approaches. It's not like this, like, oh, there's just one modern biblical criticism approach to this particular text. It's like saying, well, when people speak on cell phones, they inevitably say X, well, when people speak on cell phones, they say a million things. Look at this as a literary work, right? And take seriously that there was a, a final editor, a final redactor, right? Um, who is combining these elements deliberately, uh, or if there's at least the possibility that that's happening. What, what occurs when you read this in the context of the broader narrative? And does it seem that there are sort of clear things that the final editor of this uh, you know, book is trying to achieve? And he, and he makes, I think, a very persuasive. And it's just, it's so tempting to do, you know, these highbrow podcasts where you're pronouncing, I mean, you've got to, you've got to see the different, uh, the, the different topics that they take on in this podcast. El Greco, Picasso, and the pleasures of ignorance, angry popes and architecture, uh, Shulamit Firestones, the dialectic of sex, right? All very highbrow stuff, but from, from the, the little that I, I've listened to this podcast, all they have to say is absolute pablum. I mean, it's wonderful to take out highbrow topics, but you should be contributing something to the stream of life, not just uh, coming out with, you know, just pure elementary observations. Okay, so maybe we should just well, go over and there's, it's, like a, it's a yeah. very complicated narrative approach. So this is going to get boring for a second, but just to sort of break down what you brought up, Phil, this one to me feels like almost maybe one of the two most important points in, in like his whole over it, which is that, and in fact, let me take a huge step back to say, so like he studied Hebrew and Compilate at Harvard. So he's like, he's like the guy, right? Like he's thinking about, okay, so like what does Hebrew sound like? And also he got those degrees in 1962. Okay, just because you studied Hebrew and Compilate at uh, Harvard, that doesn't make you the guy. So it's like at the moment the modern Hebrew is beginning to exist. So it's actually not like in a, he's not in a vacuum. He's saying, okay, so Hebrew is about to get way more complicated, right? For, for 5,000 years, people have only known like 19,000 Hebrew words. And there's about to be like a cognate for, for email at some point. And so like just part of what I want to say is like this project has to happen, right? Mm -hmm. The project of like modernizing what we think about it. So super briefly, so... So Genesis 37 which is like the story we all know about um, Joseph getting his coat taken and his, and his brothers all pretend to, to Jacob like he's been killed. And then there's just a break. And then and in Genesis 38, all of a sudden there's this like story that seems totally irrelevant about Judah um, and Tamar. And we don't have to get into the details of it, but like then in, in Genesis 39, he just comes straight back. 
to Joseph. So like it does things like it's, a, it's like the first cliffhanger, right? It's like building steam so that you'll get back to it. Um, it's the meanwhile back also, at the ranch approach it's also to like storytelling. Like full like juxtaposition because there's like details that you pick out in each of those chapters that match up with each other, and it's a very very modern way to tell story. Right. So in the in the story, yeah, the the, the Judah, Yehuda, and Tamar a story. Just a very modern way to tell a story. A very modern way that uh, communities and people and tribes have been telling story for stories for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. Uh, very modern. Instead of lying directly to their father, Joseph's um, brothers hold up like his uh, clothing that has been like that they've smeared with blood, and then the father yeah. assumes that he's been killed. Right? Jacob. Uh, uh, yeah. Right. Jacob sees the blood and reacts as if he's been killed. Right. <laughs> and then. It, there's this story of. I, I remember I was at this LA press club uh, gathering, uh, talking to a Jew, a journalist, a, a bloke from England, and as he's <laughs> as he's talking to me, I, I think I'm wearing a yarmulke. He, he's, he says something like, "Have you ever heard the you know the, the story of uh, Jacob and Esau?" Judah, right? Uh, who has three sons uh, and. His son, Ur, married a woman named Tamar, right? And then Ur, Judah's firstborn, displeased God, and God took his life. And then there's the story of Onan. Um, Which is where we get masturbation from. Yes, patron saint of the internet. Um, also also modern. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> Onan is supposed to then get his brother's widow pregnant, but instead he spills his seed on the ground. Uh, and so... so the, and th that's important because, as Alter points out, so the, the larger structure of this is he's taking this story of Joseph and the stories around Joseph with Tamar and Jacob and Judah and Onan and Alter is showing the way that the full meaning of those stories only emerges from their linguistic interconnectedness that there are these Wow, who, who would have thought that you could only understand ancient history and stories that come out of ancient history by becoming aware of uh, linguistic interconnectedness? I mean, these blokes have been going on for 15 and a half minutes yet, and you know all they have are the most mundane observations or simply re repeating what other people have to say. Frames that are uh, repeated and that create these complexities uh, layers of meaning that cannot be appreciated absent a literary reading that's attentive. Oh, really? So people can't appreciate biblical stories unless they're aware of linguistics, unless they're aware of uh, literary theory, uh, unless they've taken classes in literary theory. People just can't get anything out of the Bible. Like People have been blessed by the stories in in the Bible for, for thousands of years, right? Before there was modern literary theory and modern linguistic study. ...to, for instance, the repetition of a phrase. But the meaning that he's talking about, which... Oh, who would have thought that there's meaning in the repetition of phrases? Well, the rabbis have been focusing on that for, for 2,000 years, right? This isn't some blinding insight that uh, Robert Alter and Jake Siegel are bringing us. Also only emerges from this the kind of... Uh, if there is a larger, let's say, sort of didactic element that threads through these stories in particular, it has to do with this idea of who's got the uh, inheritance of the father, which runs through, obviously, the... Yeah, if there's just one didactic, meaning teaching, you know, element in these stories, that's it. Oh, there are dozens of didactic elements uh, flowing through these stories. If you're looking for the, the didactic, all right, you can find plethora a plethora of uh, examples here. So I I called this this show, what did I call it? What the hell? The Case Against Murder. Because there aren't many things that I, I get uh, passionate about that where I, you know, I lose my, you know, realistic approach to life. But uh, yeah, murder is, is something I, I get passionate about. So when Daniel Torde, who's the guest on this show, uh, does an article on public safety where his primary focus is on his feelings, all right, that uh, that does rub me the wrong way, and it does seem to betray something important about him and about these blokes on this podcast and uh, this kind of mentality where people are, you know, pretending to levels of wisdom and knowledge and uh, profundity, and you know, these are our social betters, guys. You know, these are the the elites, 
right? These are the people who occupy the high grounds of culture. And all they have to offer us is Pavlov. The whole Bible, I mean, the Torah first half in, in particular is continually returning to this theme of fathers and sons and inheritances and, um, and how, how this, how these familial relations are worked out. And it does it in a storytelling mode, not in a purely didactic, uh, not in a, a, uh, a mode that is purely literal or literally instructive. Wow. Whoever knew that, uh, the book of Genesis was composed of stories. You're blowing my mind here, Jake. If the, the lessons such as they are only exist as stories. Well, right. and also just like, I mean, yes, that's exactly, that's super well put. And it also is. Yeah, the lessons here only exist as stories, uh, aside from all the uh, rabbinic commentaries and Christian commentaries and secular commentaries upon the stories. And like everything you just said, if you were to just decontextualize it and use that to describe like the advent of modernism would hold. Really, it's a <laughs> they, like they throw in the jargon that that you know adds adds nothing, but you know shows that they got this elite university education. Exactly the way we would talk about like Chekhov's The Duel, or the way that we would talk about like you know Faulkner overlapping characters and the way that you have to read them against each other. There is a way in which it wants to say like everything old is new again, but like this is a pretty modern mode of storytelling that you probably wouldn't expect you'd find. So yeah, they keep telling us all right that the Bible is such a very modern mode of storytelling. Right, a very modern mode of storytelling that was composed between uh, twenty three hundred and uh, thirty five hundred years ago. Very modern, in like the middle of Genesis, right? Right, and he and he points out that this is a this is a modern conceit, right? That like you know we think this would only happen in like Virginia Woolf or or whatever, right. but he says it's only by imposing a naive and unexamined aesthetic of our of uh, of our own that modern scholars are able to declare so confidently that certain parts of the ancient text could not belong with others, right? That like you know. He's seeing these things that seem strange, that seems like odd interjections. Yeah, so there are different scholars with different theories about the composition of the Pentateuch. And the, you know, some modern scholars are just thinking it's kind of like, you know, they just threw a bunch of things in a text together. And then he's right, tracking right, right. these what seem like very obvious, deliberate parallels um, and saying, no, this is this is. Yeah, and he's right. All right, all the dozens of other biblical scholarly literary theories about these texts, right? All those other scholars are wrong, but Robert Alter, he understands the the truth, right? There is this special truth out there, and uh, Robert Alter has got it, guys. Literary, this is a literary device. They are using sophisticated literary tools, um, and to sort of go back to the Tamar story, basically what happens is. Um, uh, Judah has another son who's not yet of age, and theoretically, this other son is going to then supposed to go with Tamar. But maybe, you know, for for whatever reason, uh, Judah doesn't want to do that. <laughs> maybe he's worried another son's going to die. Uh, she doesn't have a. So, guys, why are you doing this podcast? Like, what are you adding to the stream of life? What are you adding to the stream of love? What, what are you adding to the the stream of, of learning? Like, what are you bringing to this table here? I've not. I'm not hearing anything that you're bringing. The track record with his children. And um, he sends her away. And then when his son comes of age, he still doesn't send him to Tamar. So she's just sort of stuck, right? And up until this point, she's been utterly passive, has been a passive object in the story, he says, acted upon. But then um, she uh, gets up, like drapes around her face a shawl uh, and sits on the, uh, uh, like on the side of the road and waits for Judah, who thinks that she's a prostitute. He lays with her. Um, she extracts like a pledge from him uh, of his seal and cord, right? Which uh, Alter says is kind of the equivalent of asking for all his major credit cards, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And then she says like, you know, I'll give them back to you when you give me a kid uh, uh, as way of payment. And then he sends his man up uh, to ask for, you know, the prostitute. Though he says like the, um, the cult prostitute is being sort of um, uh, a little bit more respectful. Uh, they say, you know, there is no cult prostitute. It turns out that... Great. So if I was ever looking for a podcast where they recapitulate and dumb down Robert Alter, I have stumbled upon it. Tamar is pregnant. He thinks that, you know... Uh, uh, so about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. And what is more, she is with child by harlotry. And Judah said, take her out and let her be burned. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and Alter makes the point that sort of the brutality of Judah's response in Hebrew is even stronger because it's like just two words. Um, and then, of course... So why, why throughout human history have societies, communities, tribes been particularly interested 
in the paternity of children and have had a very negative reaction against uh, women who conceive and it's not known who the father is. Because men, by and large, are not going to stick around and take care of and support children that are not theirs. Right. So from from the perspectives of these, you know, three wise men on this this podcast, you know, how benighted it is that throughout human history, humanity has had a very strong interest in knowing who the father is and have had rather negative reactions to women who conceive children without knowing who the father is. Take her out. She says, you know, it's the person this this young cord is the person whose child it is. It turns out to be Judah. He's um, uh, and she says. Please recognize, and the word is hakerna, to whom these belong, this seal and cord and staff. Judah recognized them and said, she's more in the right than I, for I did not give her to my son, Selah, and he had no carnal knowledge of her again. And Oh, I mean, the, the pronunciation of the Hebrew is so awful. Uh, alter tracks, the repetition of particular um, verbs, that uh, verb uh, recognize uh, with... The you know sort of showing the kid's blood drenched cloak uh, go uh, at, uh, to Jacob to suggest that uh, you know Joseph had been killed and then showing Judah's seal and cord and that these both occur at the peak of the narrative when sort of in one case there's a deception and in another case a sort of unveiling and that these are clearly seemed designed to be operating in parallel and, and the then verb itself the right? verb is repeated yeah. and then that verb comes back later with another story not of sort of inappropriate sexuality but this time with Joseph refraining from inappropriate sexuality and then the recognition when he meets his brothers again and to alter and also right. and also just like in terms of like about that it's also i mean it's like basically like a new critical close reading at a moment when new criticism right. was like the deal right like he's using yeah. all the modern tools to give an ancient reading well modern tools that though he points out that in the midrash right uh midrash just means the the commentary on the Torah. right so this these these things were noted more than 1500 years ago in the no no midrash doesn't mean commentary on the torah midrash is filling in the gaps in biblical tales so if you look at the the podcast description here on from this uh manifesto podcast on apple Podcasts that lists all these you know prestigious books but i mean the way these guys are speaking they have you know only the most shallow understanding of anything they're talking about and they're adding nothing to our learning rush right you deceived your father with a kid by your life tomorrow will deceive you with a kid right uh, and he says this instance may suggest that in many cases a literary student of the bible has more to learn from traditional commentaries than from modern scholarship um, so this is where it gets i think especially fascinating the, the whole struggle okay so this is where it gets especially fascinating so before he related pure pablum and told us this is very interesting but now we're about to learn what's fascinating structure of Jewish learning is organized around, um, you know, historically, you could say this dates to the destruction of the temple, but the post-temple exilic uh, Jewish existence certainly is organized around uh, the system of textual commentary in large part. Of course, there's also the law and the communal aspect. And, and this is fascinating. Uh, why? I mean, many communities do this. Thanks for Judaism, but the the reading of the Torah is not done in isolation, not only in the sense that you don't read the Torah by yourself. Yeah, the only communities that just read a text by itself and you know, completely bypass tradition, right, are Protestants, right? The Protestants believe that anyone can go to the Bible, some 95 IQ midwit can go to the Bible and get divine guidance for, for his life. Every other community in the world that approaches a text, a sacred text, does it through the lens of tradition. But you don't read the Torah alone, like the the book. So there there are two versions of the Torah. There's what's called the Sefer Torah, which is the scroll, you know, that you you kind of know from the famous image of uh, the the scrolls with the the cursive. The Sefer Torah. Did you know there was the Sefer Torah? I think it means the the Sefer uh, Torah. Handwriting that goes in the Ark, and that's the sacred object. But that's that's the sacred object the Torah which has its own rules. Then there's the Torah you study, which is called the Chumash, which is like the Codex, which is the printed version. And the format in which that is found classically going back a millennium is with commentary written into it. So the text is surrounded by the commentary, leaving aside the Talmud, which is commentary on top of commentary well, about the law. I was going to say, yeah. like, if you actually like were the 
Yeah, so any Orthodox five-year-old knows this. So what exactly is so fascinating? Like talk to like uh, most of the Hasidic sects that you'd find. Like if you went down to Crown Heights to the northern side of Eastern Parkway, like they're actually spending most of their time with Talmud, in which case they're actually like four layers deep beyond that. And Zohar and and, and uh, many other texts yeah. beside. But even yeah. when they, I, I know the Hasidic Humash and I've, um, there's not. I know the Hasidic Humash. There are many different. Hasidic commentaries on the Torah, all right? I know the Hasidic Humash. Uh, what an absurd thing to say. Uh, what an absurd thing to claim when you clearly, you know, know Bupkis. Familiar with it, and it yeah. has Rashi's commentary right. on the page. So you are re- Rashi being the most the acronym of the French rabbi, 11th century Fr- French rabbi, probably the most famous Torah scholar, commentator, whoever lived, and Rashi, the great rabbi's commentary is on the page. So I, I bring this up to say that the even the classical, uh, traditional rabbinic view of the texts is not as some an object so sacred it can't be engaged with. It's that the engagement comes, uh, A, with a different set of tools, and then B, with a different set of uh, kind of referential guides and Alter is saying that there Look, the, the, the meaning of the, the tradition is is the opposite of what uh, Jake Siegel was just saying. So he was trying to make the, the point that uh, Judaism's approach to text is so much more sophisticated. They don't just say, here's the Torah and it's sacred and uh, that's it. No, they have various commentaries upon it. And so what traditional Judaism then does is it expands the realm of the sacred. So not just the Torah text is sacred, but Rashi's commentary is sacred, and Ibn Ezra's commentary is sacred, and this second century commentary is sacred, and this 20th century commentary is sacred. So you are expanding, expanding, expanding the realm of, of that which is, you know, in essence coming from, from God. So the, the, the true significance of the meaning of what he's actually talking about is actually the very opposite of what he's saying. Meanings that you can derive only from the more traditional rabbinic yeah, yeah, readings yeah. that apply and in fact, to yes. the literary. So the the straitjacket, all right, if you want, you know, freedom to pursue truth wherever it leads, right, the straitjacket of the Jewish tradition is, you know, far more complicated and has far more layers than you would have if you, say, took a Protestant approach where the only straitjacket is the biblical text itself. So this isn't necessarily, you know, expanding the realm of the pursuit of truth, right? This is restricting the realm for the pursuit of truth by adding layer upon layer upon layer of what is sacred and coming from God and therefore having, you know, varying levels of binding authority it seems like super key and if you like bear with me for one second because it's going to sound a tiny off topic but it's like super on topic um so like i've been reading about this this 17th century false uh, messiah named shemtai Tzvi. so i've been reading with a with a uh rabbi friend who considers himself a neo-hasid at, at this kind of like uh 18th century okay so anyone who considers himself you know a neo-hasid is has absolutely nothing to do with ascetic judaism Right, people who actually practice, you know, ascetic Judaism would feel virtually nothing in common with these blokes. Who, you know, there are thousands of people who consider themselves neo-Hasid, but they are, they are as Hasidic as Northern Hobbes. Uh, Hasidic rabbi named Reb Nachman, and and it's crazy because I'll sit down and read with him, and it's like, you know, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm when I'm researching for a novel. Like, I'm reading an enormous amount of texts, and some of them very fast. You know, like, I'm trying to get through Gershom Shalom's book on Shabbat Zvi that's, like, a thousand pages long. And then when I get together, my- Yeah, so these guys are doing a lot of reading. They aren't doing very much comprehending, right? They're not exactly, like, chewing and digesting and and dwelling upon uh, what they're reading. They're, it's like when you, you're visiting a city... You want to enjoy it. You go for a hike, and then there are certain there are certain personalities who who go. Okay, we have to visit this beach to you know tick it off our list, and then you know okay, we got to run to catch the bus, and then you know we got to go here, we got to go there, you know, so that we can say that we did it. And so you know these blokes talk as though oh you know I read this book, and I read this book, and I read this book. But uh, th- their level of comprehension is so pitiful. Like Josh, and he's like, well, let's read these like three sentences really closely right. for like three hours. And it is, 
it's like a really beautiful and really intense and really spiritual. Experience. I know exactly what you're describing. But, but I actually do think weirdly. Uh, do you really know exactly what he's describing? Because nothing you've had to say so far provides any evidence that you know anything about this. Alter's doing a tiny bit of a different thing. So like to step back from what Phil was saying just before we lose the thread of this, this moment in Genesis. So Genesis 36, which is the chapter that precedes the other ones, is just one of those chapters that like we all know where it's just like, and whoever begat whoever, and they begat whoever. So just like read a couple lines. You know, these are the sons of Seir the Horite who had settled in the land. Lotan and Shobal and Zabea and Anna and Tishon and Dezer and Tishon. So it's like just paragraphs of names like that. And actually like, I think it's tacit in what Alter's saying is that like, so it's like we get the huge broad view. Here's all the names of these people. And then and then the next chapter is like, okay, let's pick out the people who are most important in that. We're going to tell the story of Joseph and Jacob. And actually, like, to, like, go into that fractal even further, let's take a second to talk about Judah and Tamar and then come back out. And I would just say, like... Okay, I, I can't take any more. 27 minutes we, we endured. Why on earth did they do a podcast on something that they know next to nothing about and have zero, nothing to contribute? All right, let's get back to this... Uh, terrific Jack Schaefer column on Rupert Murdoch. So it talks about the Trump-Fox uh, feedback loop, right? Tr the Fox News Network and Rupert Murdoch initially did not want Donald Trump to become president, but once uh, Trump seized power, then they kowtowed to him because it was, that was what was you know best for their, for their bottom line. Okay, so Rupert Murdoch's fear of a Trump temper tantrum became palpable after the January 6th Capitol Hill riot. So Murdoch claims that Sean Hannity, Trump's stalwart, has been privately disgusted by Trump for weeks, but was scared to lose viewers. So this this all coheres in, in my mind anyway. It's just that the the things that people say publicly, like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and uh, you know the Fox News Network and you know the things that these three blokes on this podcast are, are manifesto, all the things that they're claiming publicly, like the very opposite is true. Right. So as with Fox, as with the, the Manifesto podcast, the extent that I, I listened to it, the very opposite of what these people say is, is true. So Murdoch claims that Sean Hannity has been privately disgusted by Donald Trump for weeks, but is scared to lose viewers. All right. And the, these three blokes, they could have done a great podcast on these books, but they were scared to tell the truth. Right? They were scared to reveal their vulnerability of their very low level of knowledge and their lack of introspection and their lack of like doing any hard thinking. And so all they do is just mindlessly repeat and, and dumb down uh, insights from Robert Alter. So Rupert Murdoch was mapping his fear of losing viewers under Sean Hannity as a single instruction to the host to tell the truth about Trump's claims would have put things straight. Yeah. If only Sean Hannity had gotten that word. So, Former Fox executive told Murdoch January 8, Fox News needs a course correction on Trump. Murdoch replied, Fox News was busy pivoting. We want to make Trump a non-person. So uh, Fox News has essentially shadow banned Donald Trump, right? They, they're not bringing Donald Trump on to talk. They are doing everything they can to not talk about Donald Trump and not to provide any fuel or fodder for his campaign. And what all this reveals is how you know, weak and pathetic uh, Fox News is. Because if Donald Trump catches fire, Fox News will have to kowtow once again simply to maintain their audience. So Rupert Murdoch was telling his son that uh, Fox News was pivoting as fast as possible away from Donald Trump. But Rupert is aware that the deconditioning process for the audience is hairy. We have to lead our viewer, which not as easy it might seem, Rupert Murdoch says. Nobody wants Trump as an enemy, Murdoch says in a deposition, still bruised from his tiger ride. Right, we all know that Trump is a big following. If he says, don't watch Fox News, maybe some don't. So the, the beginning of wisdom is acknowledging your own frailty, your own vulnerability, your own you know, lack of wisdom, knowledge, and uh, expertise. The Fox pivot away from Trump did come eventually. So Fox News, for what, about a year, has essentially banned Donald Trump from the network. And Trump continues to hector Fox from his social media perch at Truth Social. But he's yet to go full bore against his former ally. So who among us would preclude a reunion in 2024 with Trump 
pulling Murdoch strings once more if Trump wins the presidential nomination. So Rupert Murdoch's pursuit of power and money, right, has always been a naked secret. So why why does Fox News bring on stolen election crackpot Mike Fabillo Lindell on Tucker Carlson's show? Like why allow this crackpot on the show? Well, it's not about red or blue. It's about green. It's about cashing Mike Lindell's fat checks. That's what it's all about. Okay, let's get a little here from uh, Tucker. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight on a Friday. Last fall, a Democrat called Tony DeLuca got reelected to the Pennsylvania State House while dead. Not just dead inside, like most politicians, but actually dead, not breathing. And not only did DeLuca win after having been dead for a full month, but he won in a landslide. Tony DeLuca got more than 85% of the vote. Now, by any measure that is embarrassing, Pennsylvania Democrats elected a dead man. They knew they were doing it. They did it anyway. This would seem to defeat the idea of representative democracy, which is that you vote for people so they can represent you. But party leaders in Pennsylvania were not embarrassed. They were proud. Quote, well, we're incredibly saddened by the loss of Representative Tony DeLuca, they said in a statement. We are proud to see the voters continue to show their confidence in him and his commitment to democratic values by reelecting him posthumously. In other words, electing a guy who can't possibly represent you is not an offense against democracy. It's the essence of democracy. Okay, so Fox News is shadow banning Donald Trump. So according to four Trump aides, right, the former president is now facing an unofficial ban at Fox News. The network is refusing to book him, it's refusing to talk much about him in the context of the Republican presidential primary. Right. I mean, Donald Trump running for president once again is a major news story, but uh, Fox News doesn't want to talk about it. The Trump has not been a guest on Fox News since September. All right, Fox News skipped his trip last week to East Palestine, Ohio, right? A major talking point in the debate over the environmental disaster. So you've got, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running for president. He's been on the network four times in the 10 days since he announced his run for president. Uh, Ron DeSantis, you know, appears on Fox shows virtually every day of the week. But uh, not Donald Trump. He's he's banned from from Fox, where most of their audience, you know, loves him. And their audiences eventually go to, you know, cotton on and not be very happy. So Fox is just playing it safe. The Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity shows are just playing it safe, just uh, doing, you know, doing pieces about how, did you know that Joe Biden is old and infirm? So rather than talking about, you know, dominant news story, how how credible, how likely is it that uh, Donald Trump is going to win the Republican nomination? Uh, Fox is deforming itself, deforming its coverage of the news, you know, to follow the, the whims of its uh, Murdoch owners. Now, it's not a typo. They put that in a press release. And actually, it makes it kind of sense when you remember that it was also in the state of Pennsylvania. The Democratic Party leaders backed a Senate candidate called John Fetterman long after he had suffered a massive stroke and could no longer talk or communicate clearly. Okay, I've been listening to a terrific uh, Audible series on the rise of modern Japan. So what exactly brought about Japan's surrender in August 1945? And the United States was much less enthusiastic about working with Stalin. The United States excluded the Soviets from the Potsdam Declaration on July 26, 1945, that called for Japan's surrender. The Potsdam Declaration was issued in Truman's name for the United States, Churchill's name for the United Kingdom, and Chiang Kai-shek's name for China. Stalin was left out. And Stalin began to worry that the United States would renege on the promises made at Yalta. Furthermore, after the U.S. dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Stalin realized that he would have to strike hard and fast or Japan might surrender before Russia got all the territory it had been promised. The atomic bomb at Hiroshima demonstrated that the U.S. could obliterate Japanese cities with impunity, and it prompted Stalin to enter the war with massive force. 
And that confronted the Japanese government with the terrifying prospect of surrendering to the Soviet Union. The Japanese emperor had dismissed Konoe's warnings back in February, but by August they seemed prophetic. Now, thinking along those lines, the second atomic bomb at Nagasaki becomes even more problematic and much more troubling than the bomb at Hiroshima. Unlike Hiroshima, Nagasaki had little military value, and there's little evidence that Japanese leaders had fully processed the scale of the Hiroshima bombing just three days earlier. Nagasaki, I would argue, wasn't one of the last bombs of World War II, but one of the first bombs of the Cold War. It was a signal from Truman to Stalin not to get greedy and go beyond the territory promised at Yalta. And that will be one of the themes of this. Yeah, so you send a signal, you, you nuke you know, 100,000 Japanese to send a signal to Stalin. Right? This is how the real world works. Of course, the Cold War began before World War II was over. Let's conclude by returning to our four Japanese leaders. What happened to Mazaki, Shidahara, Yoshida, and Konoe in the post-world world? Okay. Lecture but- two. How the U.S. occupation remade Japan, 1945 to 1952. From se- All right, so... One, one condition the Japanese put on is that uh, they get to keep the emperor. But how, how do you keep, keep the emperor? Like uh, the United States just uh, twisted itself into all sorts of uh, uh, pretzels here. Tribunal. It was modeled closely on the post-war Nuremberg trials in Germany. The primary focus in Tokyo was to assign individual responsibility for a Japanese conspiracy to commit crimes against the peace. That- right, there's no, there's no international law. I mean, that's just, people may you know, buy into it or, or not buy into it, but who enforces, all right? If, if there's law that no one enforces, then the, the law is meaningless. So major powers enforce uh, international law when it's in their interest to do so. And so the United States and the victors of World War II thought it was in their interest to you know, punish the temerity of the Japanese for launching a war in the Pacific. That meant planning or participating in a war of aggression. The idea that war itself was a war crime stemmed from the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928. So at the core of the Nuremberg and Tokyo... by, by this measure, the United States has committed you know, many war crimes, right? The United States unnecessarily invaded Afghanistan in 2001, Iraq in 2003, Panama in 1989. Trials was the idealistic aspiration to a world without war. The charge of conspiracy... So they use this you know, piece of idealism in, in very you know, nasty, realistic ways. But the U.S. uses, you know, very idealistic rhetoric when they brutally, when the United States brutally pursues its self-interest. But at least it does it under beautiful rhetoric. It was modeled on the prosecution of officials of Nazi Germany. In that case, there had been a Nazi party and a single head of the party, Adolf Hitler, who held power from 1933 to 1945. Hitler and his aides had convened meetings where they explicitly planned a war and war crimes. In Tokyo, the prosecution argued that in Japan, too, there had been a coherent conspiracy, starting in 1927. Look, there there are only war crimes if you have a universally acknowledged legal and moral standard. But if you don't have a universally acknowledged legal and moral standard, you don't have war crimes. To wage an aggressive war in East Asia. Now, the problem with that legal argument was that from 1927 to 1945, Japan had been led by 16 different prime ministers. And the military was so divided that factions were murdering one another in 1936. The only single point of continuity from 1927 to 1945 was the Showa emperor. And the occupation had absolved the emperor of war guilt. So he could only be the victim of the conspiracy. He couldn't be the leader of the conspiracy. 
So the conspiracy charge and the exoneration of the emperor were incompatible. One American historian described a... So America is just following its national interests, but using this, this nonsensical, idealistic rhetoric. ...trial on conspiracy without the emperor as something like a production of Hamlet in which the director just decided to leave out the Prince of Denmark. To push a conspiracy charge without tainting the emperor, the U.S. prosecution had to manage defendants behind the scenes. They coached defendants to protect the emperor. On one occasion... Right, they, they coached defendants to protect the emperor and to assist the United States, you know, executing the bad Japanese they wanted to execute. The Japanese general, Tojo Hideki, testified that no Japanese military officer would act contrary to the emperor's wishes. And the prosecution had to scramble and arrange for Tojo to correct the court record the following day, insisting that contrary to the implications of his testimony the previous day, the emperor had had no part in the war effort. So overall, the Tokyo trials were like a second-tier touring company version of the Nuremberg prosecutions. In Germany, the lead U.S. prosecutor was from the top of the legal system, Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson, who'd previously served as Franklin Roosevelt's attorney general. In Tokyo, the U.S. lead prosecutor was Joseph B. Keenan, an assistant attorney general in the Justice Department's criminal division. Keenan viewed Japanese defendants... So there's a good uh, Netflix miniseries called uh, Tokyo Trial about this. ...through the lens of his experience targeting organized crime. Keenan had little grasp of either international politics or history, and he lacked any particular interest in war crimes. That lack of interest and lack of experience became obvious in Keenan's opening statement when he accused the conspirators of seeking to destroy democracy and its essential basis, the system of government of and by and for the people. Now, however noble that sentiment, it couldn't be seriously applied to the Pacific War, as Keenan imagined. For example, when Japan invaded Indochina in 1941, it attacked French colonies, not vibrant democracies. Such conceptual problems did not go unnoticed. The Indian judge on the trial, Radhabinod Pal, wrote a blistering dissent. He argued that the entire crimes against the peace charge was absurd and hypocritical. The Dutch and French judges also dissented. And he was absolutely right. Absolutely right. Keenan could have abandoned the problematic conspiracy charge and focused instead on conventional war crimes, such as Japan's execution of prisoners of war and its mistreatment of civilians. Instead, Keenan suggested dropping conventional war crimes charges. He wanted to conclude the trial sooner. Keenan was overruled by his staff, but still the prosecution of conventional war crimes was carried out despite the lead prosecutor's lack of interest. Keenan's handling of the case was so poor that several of his associates quit. One American judge in the tribunal was so appalled that he asked to be replaced. The problem of prosecuting conventional war crimes was also complicated by Cold War concerns. For example, the U.S. secretly granted immunity to Japan's biological warfare unit in exchange for their data. So the United States imposed a constitution uh, on Japan that was largely a rewrite of American state and, and national constitutions. And uh, MacArthur gave you know several blokes a week to come up with a Japanese constitution. It was written in English, then translated into Japanese, forcibly imposed on the, the Japanese. They were told they couldn't have an army, and the Japanese had, had no choice but to accept this. Then... You know, the Cold War grows more and more intense. The United States says, well, wait, we actually need you to develop an armed forces. And Japan very cannily said, oh, no, it's in our constitution that we're not allowed to develop uh, armed forces. You, you forced us to have this in our constitution. So Japan got rich because they didn't waste money on armed forces. They just relied on the United States to spend the money. Word spread among Japanese officers that the key to avoiding indictment was to offer some sort of anti-communist intelligence, however implausible or insubstantial. A key figure in that moral and tactical disaster was Charles A. Willoughby, General MacArthur's chief of intelligence. Willoughby was such a fanatical anti-communist that MacArthur referred to him as my pet fascist. Willoughby was a fan of both Mussolini and Francisco Franco. He was a racist, 
and an anti-Semite. Willoughby's sole virtue seems to have been his devotion to MacArthur, which bordered on sycophancy. Willoughby helped numerous Japanese war criminals escape prosecution, including some responsible for the Bataan Death March, all in return for the promise of some kind of anti-communist intelligence. Later, the CIA found that most of his recruits were utterly useless, if not dangerous. Willoughby distinguished himself further during the Korean War. Rather than displease MacArthur, Willoughby concealed intelligence indicating that Mao Zedong would intervene in the Korean War if U.S. forces approached the Yalu River, the border separating China and Korea. He withheld that intelligence, and that contributed to a catastrophic rout of U.S. forces when the Chinese committed more than a million soldiers to drive the U.S. back south. Truly a distinguished military career. So with the combination of Keenan's confusion, Willoughby's fanaticism, and the dynamics of the Cold War, the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal left a toxic, lasting legacy. The trial made it impossible in Japan to discuss the role of the emperor during the war because an international military tribunal had exonerated him. And perversely, the exoneration of the emperor... Right, and you hear this all the time in the news media and public conversations. Like, oh, you know, a tribunal ruled this. You know, a special royal commission ruled that, or a jury decided this. Just because a jury, a court, a tribunal, a, a royal commission decides something doesn't mean it's true, right? Just because things go through a bureaucratic process does not make them accurate, true, right, good, righteous, any of those things. Emperor made men like Tojo look noble because they took the rap for the emperor. Japanese military veterans knew something was amiss. How had the emperor gone from being omnipotent to powerless? But few Japanese veterans returned home eager to talk about the horrors of war. It was easier to just stay quiet. Now that silence began to end in 1989 with the death of the Showa emperor. His death reopened the question of what had really happened. Aging Japanese veterans, many facing their own mortality, began to talk more openly about the war and what they thought they were fighting for. But those conversations are still a fraught process full of heartfelt confessions and furious rebuttals. Okay, that's going to do it for tonight. Have a good Shabbos. Bye-bye.